Welcome to season two of Talking PFAS. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I recommend that you have a listen to season one to catch up on some of the foundational chats we had about PFAS. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. In Australia in 2018, an inquiry into the management of PFAS contamination in and around defence bases was conducted. This was the second PFAS inquiry in Australia and its focus was on contamination around defence bases only. In Australia, there are currently 26 defence sites being investigated or managed for PFAS contamination. The 2018 PFAS inquiry held three public hearings in a few affected communities in Australia at Williamtown, New South Wales, Catherine in the Northern Territory and Oakey in Queensland. A final public hearing was held in Canberra in the ACT. There are many other communities affected by PFAS in Australia, but Williamtown, Catherine and Oakey are all involved in class actions against the Department of Defence. The trial will take place in the Federal Court of Australia at the New South Wales Registry from the 12th of August 2019. There is far too much information from the parliamentary inquiry into PFAS in 2018 and hours of audio to listen to than can possibly be included in this wrap. However, submissions, transcripts from the hearings and committee's report can be viewed on the Australian Parliament's website and I will put a link to that in the show notes. To help me provide some key points to you today in this episode, I will be combining some information recorded during the hearings with comments made by the former chair of the inquiry, Mr Andrew Lamming, member for Bowman, Queensland, in the House of Representatives on December 3, 2018, the day the committee's report was presented. Andrew Lamming is the first Liberal Member of Parliament to be heard in this podcast. Before we hear from Andrew Lamming, we will hear from community leaders who have been affected by PFAS contamination from the RAF-based Newcastle. Then you will hear Andrew Lamming's speech with other relevant comments from the inquiry interspersed throughout. This is Lindsay Clout speaking on behalf of CAP, the Coalition Against PFAS. I am the uh, president of the Fullerton Cove Residents Action Group and chairperson, spokesperson for Coalition Against PFAS. Thank you for the opportunity to speak on behalf of the uh, Coalition Against PFAS and my community. Here we are again, another inquiry, three years on from the last, and not a lot has changed, unfortunately. The pollution's still leaving the base, the community is still trapped, prisoners to this contamination. And our wants are clear. We want this chemical banned across the country. We want our government to enter the Stockholm Agreement to protect human health and the environment. We want the area cleaned up and remediated. That's all contaminated sites. Develop a compensation package that meets the needs of residences and businesses. In preparing this introduction, my first step was to review my introduction from the previous inquiry. Both Justin and I appeared nearly three years ago. That was uh, December 2015. And sadly, I could simply read it out again. So little has changed. Fast forward again to today, and where are we? Oakey, Catherine, Williamtown. Still contaminated, and defence spending has exceeded $100 million. And they're standing with their finger in the dike, and it's still leaking. And I can draw your attention to conclusion 646 from the previous inquiry. It states, the community is concerned 
that if the mistakes made regarding contamination at Rathbase Williamtown are not addressed promptly by defence, then they will most certainly be repeated at other sites in the future. The language from defence and our federal government has not changed. Low and acceptable risk. No consistent evidence of health impacts from exposure. And we've heard that several times already today. And not even the finding of the US C8 study of 68,000 people with probable links to 20 diseases and cancer has changed that mantra. We sat here three years ago and we pleaded for help. The committee responded and provided a long list of recommendations that we asked for. Recommendations that if implemented in full would have not seen us back here today. Well, today we're not pleading, we're not asking. We need help, we need it now. The speakers you'll hear today will show passion, which may very well spill over into anger. This is not directed at you, it's directed at defence and our federal government's inaction. In closing, I do not see uh, many familiar faces sitting in front of me from the previous inquiry, but if I look around the room and outside, every face I see is familiar. I've seen them at meetings, protest gatherings, doing interviews in the media, drop-in sessions. Like me, their faces show much more age than the three years that have elapsed. Why? Because each and every one has fought hard for justice. In this crisis, we have fought for blood testing program. We have fought for town water connection, soil and surface water testing. We even had to fight to have airborne transmissions of this chemical accepted as a transmission pathway. We won't give up. We will continue to fight for what is right. And each and every one of those faces are asking you, help us end this now. Now we will hear from Kane and Rihanna Gorfine from the Williamtown Surrounds Action Group. So I sit here today as president of Williamtown and Surrounds Residents Action Group. We were established in 2015 to represent the families and businesses of Williamtown and surrounding communities. As you just heard, I'm attended by my wife, Rihanna, the public officer for our group, whom you will also hear from today. Myself and Rihanna also sit on the Department of Premier and Cabinet's Community Reference Group and have done so since its inception. We've met with ministers, premiers, academics, scientists, lawyers and journalists. We've written hundreds of emails and we sat through and presented at a Senate inquiry in 2015. We have an intimate understanding of this government's failure to act. It has exposed a broken system. A system that allows the polluter to dictate the terms of its own clean-up operation. A system which, being void of any national regulator, places the responsibility of contamination management on Commonwealth lands back to the polluter. And the last time I looked, the Australian Department of Defence did not have listed on its resume experts in environmental remediation. Our three young children are at school and an extra day of daycare today. The oldest gets the idea we are away again to talk about this contamination stuff. Why should he have to? And like many others in our community, tonight will be another night that we hide our tears, our frustrations and our anger and put on a brave face not knowing what our future holds as we tuck them into bed and read them a good night story. Think about that for a moment. Yes, this is our harsh reality. The Department of Defence their lack of accountability has permanently altered the path we had chosen for our family. More than that, it has torn at the seams of the fabric of our dreams. More on that later. This legacy is now a burden each and every one of you sitting there today must recognise. A burden you must bear. For it is within your power and influence that the wheels of change can be set into motion. 
we rely on you for the outcomes we all deserve because we have tried. Sure, we'll continue to fight, but we need you to pull them into line. Help us awake the behemoth from its hibernation and give us back our future. So what does it mean to be betrayed by your own government? We live with our family at Cabbage Tree Road, Williamtown. It's just down the road, about a five-minute drive from this room. Rihanna and I invite you to come for a cup of tea and have a chat when the formalities of today's sessions are complete. I also stand here as a father and a husband, and as a fellow proud Australian whose great-grandfather landed on the shores of Anzac Cove on the 25th of April 1915. His memory and the sacrifices he made enable me to sit here today, and most importantly, enable you in your roles to carry on his legacy, to hold this government to account and free its citizens from a disaster which they have been placed in through no fault of their own. We are merely victims of circumstance. You owe us this much. Your challenges are clear, and the community's expectation is even clearer. Demand that defence stop immediately any further contamination leaving the base. Demand compensation, just like your colleagues did back in 2015, for the families of Williamtown, Saltash and Fullerton Cove. Ensure those payments reach our bank accounts before our fourth Christmas living this nightmare. And make certain there is enough to put us back in the position we were before this sorry mess began for us in September 2015. There are people in this community who cannot afford to wait another three years living under a cloud of doubt. There are people in this community who cannot afford to lose another sleepless night worrying if they have made their kids sick. There are people in this community who cannot afford to hold off just a little bit longer, hoping that defence will do the right thing. And there are people in this community who cannot afford to keep paying a mortgage on a home that is not fit for purpose, that is worth nothing because our leaders in government could not come together to get things done. Those are the stories we carry day to day. The community group who have been forced into suing its very own government. Rihanna and I have a half a million dollar mortgage and our bank does not recognise any value in our property. Ask us about this. Rihanna and I have had to rip out the, of the earth the very things which were supposed to nurture and provide for us, our vegetables and fruit trees. Ask us about this. Rihanna and I have had to put on hold everything we had planned for our dream home and business. Ask us about this. And all of that could have been managed in some small way if and only if defence had not stolen what is most important of all, our time. I think Kane covered pretty much everything. It's very, very, very hard to sit here all day and listen to our friends, our neighbours, tell the stories of what they're going through. It's very much a coping mechanism that you shut yourself off to things. The other night, Kane was trying to read me the speech. I couldn't listen to it. I was having a panic attack because I, I didn't want to go there again. I needed to save it for today. Everything is just overshadowed with that what if and the unknown and your children. And like Kane said, today for me should have been a day off with my son, who's in an extra day of daycare. Kane's on an annual leave day. We know our other friends um, and colleagues are, are off from away from their businesses. And it's just time and time again that's put into it. But it's just the, just the screwing of the mind. Because it doesn't matter what happens. The, always at the back it could be is this from the contamination. You know, recently I've had a, the doctor find a cyst Luckily, it's come back as nothing. But for the week while you're waiting for tests to come back, you just want to run away, you want to get away. Why are we living here? And you, we can't do anything, as, as Kane's alluded to. We've been involved in this for a, a long time. The biggest thing that puts it into perspective for us, our youngest, he was just over one when the contamination news broke. 
in two weeks time is going to be four. If you think about your children, grandchildren and the changes between a one-year-old and a four-year-old, he doesn't know a life where even though you try and shield them from it, that mummy and daddy aren't stressed. It, it is starting to define and have that knock-on effect to, for our children. Our seven, almost seven-year-old has been diagnosed with generalised anxiety. But the time has been taken away and that's what makes me so angry. And there's times that you just want to get, get up and yell and scream because so much has been taken away. Time is precious. But then not to mention the dream property. As a 14-year-old, I dreamt of having my own acreage for my horses. Never wanted my children to move home. I moved around a lot as a child and our family home was going to be our family home. And I found it up here with our six acres. Close to Stockton, great for the kids, close to everything. It's just been shattered. You can't even sit outside and enjoy a nice cup of tea or coffee in the sun. You might enjoy it for a minute or two. Lovely sun making you warm, feeling good. Look at your property and, and then it comes haunting back. What if? And then what haven't we done? Our stables weren't built. I wanted my stables. My grandfather, when I was 11, gave me a brass hook of a horse. I haven't hung that up until I've wanted to get my stable that I could put my horse in and I would hang up that hook. I haven't got it. We had all the materials there and as soon as this news broke, what is the point in putting any more money in your property because it's not worth anything? So we've, we've sold the trusses, we've burnt some of the wood and it's not happening because that property now is not our home. It's not our family home, we don't feel safe, and it's not our future. And this is where we need the government to be able to put us back into the position where we can move on for the sake of our children and for their future so they can move on to be happy and healthy. The chemicals don't know what boundaries are. The stigma of this <laughs> doesn't recognise what a line and a map is. And more to that, the chemicals, that they are spreading. We initially had a nil detect in our property, and now we've got a detect. And we were told that that could never happen. We've got elevated blood levels. I'm about seven times the national average. Our kids are in the same boat. The whole thing's a mess, and we suffer because of it. It needs to be clear. There's, you're not hearing from a huge amount of people today. There's a lot of people that aren't able to get up and talk or not able to put down into words to make a submission or computer illiterate. There are many, many reasons or, you know, just actually can't go there to relive what we're going through. The whole community is hurting. There are many, many people out there. Please be aware that there are so many residents included, each with their individual stories. Thank you. Thank you both. Throughout all of the public hearings, the various committee members showed great compassion to the residents sharing their stories. This is Ms Sharon Clayton, Federal Member for Newcastle. Thank you. Thank you both um, so much. I can only begin to imagine what it's like stumping up to yet another inquiry for you both. Um, you've been the face of this for the community for many years now and that takes its toll and I, my own personal observations of seeing people in this room, many of whom I've seen for many years, is just the, um, you know, the very clear deterioration on people's mental health is very obvious to me. And I think, uh, look, your testimony today and certainly your written submission to, you know, makes clear that we really do need to acknowledge the extraordinary personal, I guess, human and emotional costs that this has for you and your, your families. The time that you're putting into trying to find a satisfactory redress, I guess, is beyond most people's imaginations, I think. This is Jenny Robinson, resident of Williamtown, New South Wales. We're trapped on our properties. We have to take medication for high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Our son has high uric acid and is on medication. 
Two of our children moved to the Northern Territory and they now know that they've been drinking Catherine water, which is contaminated by those same chemicals that we have here. We feel for our neighbours and our friends who have lost family members to cancer and those that we know are now struggling with their cancers and other health issues. Mentally, this has taken a huge toll on all of us and our faith that the right thing will be done has taken a huge beating. It seems that everything we're told is just to downplay the seriousness of the situation. We live this hell every day. You'll hear some other comments from Williamtown, New South Wales, Oakey, Queensland and Catherine Northern Territory throughout this episode. Now let's hear from Mr Andrew Lamming, member for Bowman, Queensland. The Senate referred the inquiry into the management of PFAS contamination in and around defence bases to the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade, December 2017. It followed the release of the Expert Health Panel report into the potential human health effects of PFAS exposure, exposure that needed to be minimised as a precaution. This report contains significant recommendations and has a focus on improving the government's response to this issue, particularly in relation to the concerns of affected communities that the subcommittee visited. The committee came up with nine recommendations, and you can see those in detail in the committee's report by following the link in the show notes. And as a medical practitioner, what really struck me was that the uncertainty around health impacts appeared to have stalled progress towards just resolution of cases for affected residents. And as we report in detail, that equity trap, independent of health impacts, could take years or decades to resolve. You will hear Andrew Lemming's explanation of the equity trap later in this episode, but for now, here are just some of the health effects that were noted in the committee's report, as Andrew Lemming did not expand on these in his speech. Exposure to PFAS has been associated with certain medical conditions in some overseas studies. They name these studies and provide details of their findings on page 55 of their report. But a few health findings the committee included in their report from the overseas literature is a study of 656 children with elevated exposures to PFOA and PFOS and associated with reduced immunity to childhood immunisations in children aged 5 and 7. A large study of 69,000 persons, known as the C8 study, found probable links between elevated PFOA blood levels and the following disease. High cholesterol, ulcerative colitis, thyroid diseases, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, preeclampsia and elevated blood pressure during pregnancy. In 2016, the German Human Biomonitoring Commission rated human health effects in the following areas as well-proven, relevant and significantly associated with exposure to PFOA and or PFOS. Fertility in pregnancy, weight of newborns at birth, lipid metabolism, immunity after vaccination, immunological development, hormonal development, thyroid metabolism, onset of menopause. The US EPA says there is evidence that exposure to PFAS can lead to adverse human health effects. The most consistent findings from human epidemiology studies are increased cholesterol levels among exposed populations, with more limited findings related to infant birth weights, effects on the immune system, cancer for PFOA, and thyroid hormone disruption for PFOS. Residents pleaded with the committee 
that more recent and current overseas literature needed to be taken into account when looking at health findings. This is the former New South Wales Green Senator Lee Rhiannon talking to Sue Walker, resident of Fullerton Cove, New South Wales. With regard to the communications on health issues, is that adequate? It's just good for us to get I that know, on the record. I know, um, Adequate, really? Whatever words you want to use. Yeah, okay. I could go on for hours here. The first thing I can think of is the Commonwealth, you know, saying that there's no adverse health effects. And yet I go on to this morning, for example, because I've been up since three o'clock worrying about this. I go on to the EPA US site. And this is what's on the EPA site in the USA. Are there health effects from PFAS? There is evidence that exposure of PFAS can lead to adverse health outcomes in humans. Is, is. If humans, animals, ingest PFAS, the PFAS is absorbed and accumulates in the body. It stays in the human body for long periods of time. As a result, people who are exposed to PFAS um, have different sources over time. The level of PFAS in their bodies may increase to the point where they suffer from adverse health effects. Studies indicate that PFOA and PFOS can cause a multitude of things, including reproductive and developmental, liver, kidney, immune system. Both chemicals have caused tumours in animal studies. It just it blows my mind um, that we've got the EPA in the US saying this, and yet I look at what we're being told here in Australia. On what grounds are they telling us this? And telling us this, you're referring to the fact that in Australia they're saying that there's no established yes, health connections. Exactly, exactly. And as I said, I was reading through the Commonwealth submission um, and I read with interest through it some of the words and phrases that was used in the submission. And these words give us little confidence as to the decisions that they're making about our health. For example, no consistent evidence that exposure causes adverse health effects. However dot, 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 data set not yet complete, a risk may be present. Some human health studies have found associations, unable to determine certainty, more research required, limited evidence, not clinically significant, need to improve our understanding, knowledge gaps, weaknesses in regulation, lack of scientific certainty, significant levels of uncertainty, underpinned by accepted available science, Limited proven technologies. Do I have to go on? It's more like a game of Russian roulette for us. Dr Andrew Jeremajenko, a fellow of the Australasian Faculty of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, gave evidence at the Oki hearing about the health effects. Here's a little of his statement. So my name is Dr Andrew Jeremajenko. I actually work in Brisbane at the MADA Private Hospital. I'm an occupational physician. I know there's doctors out here who are trying to minimise the health effects. You know, the expert panel was, it came out and they sort of said, oh, there's not that many bad health effects. But if you actually read the text of the expert panel, and the health effects are quite clear. Basically, obviously, they cause immune effects. uh, And the immune effects is something that have been known about for a long time. And it was actually hidden for many years. There's been corruption of the science. There's effects on the liver. You know, they say in the the document that it causes high cholesterol, but it's only a, a little bit of high cholesterol. It, it's not that damaging. But, you know, you know that high cholesterol is bad for you. You know that having a poor immune system is bad for you. These, these, are, these are real health effects, and they're associated with these chemicals. 
So I think it's really important that people understand that their health effects are real. The English advice is that it may cause cancer, and the, uh, the American advice associated with uh, kidney and uh, testicular cancer, it's associated with liver effects, it's associated with high cholesterol, it's associated with uh, kidney, uh, high urea. There's, there's a lot of health effects. The only reason the expert panel said it doesn't cause disease is because, like smoking, it takes 20 years to prove that it causes cancer. It's associated with cancer first, and then it causes cancer later. It's just an epidemiological sort of semantics where you can't really say it's a, a causation. You have to say it's association. The committee wanted to see an improvement in voluntary blood testing because this is our key source of longitudinal information. Not that blood tests in and of themselves tell us anything about health outcomes, but they track the important ability of this organic chemical that is persistent uh, by ingestion through the gut for those that have lived for various periods of time in contaminated areas. And obviously the goal is to look for long-term health impacts of exposure to PFAS and the effectiveness of the ways in which we break PFAS exposure pathways. And the committee found it was really important to collect this data assiduously, that medical practitioners themselves shouldn't be taking systematic solo flights on who they test and who they don't, but the testing should be freely available to that target group. And we work on making that coverage as high as possible. Many residents from Oakey, Catherine and Williamtown shared at the inquiry that they had to fight to get free blood tests for PFAS. For some residents, the process of getting their blood taken was not simple either. Here is a little of what Jennifer Spencer shared at the Oakey hearing in Queensland. I've been told and I've found that um, from personal experience with my son that it was a a very harrowing process to walk into this doctor's surgery and ask for your PFAS blood testing. I sent him down again a year after his first one, because he's 18, to um, get another blood test done. He promised me that he'd go down, which he did. I made him the appointment. He walked in. He went and saw one of the GPs that work in here, a male, and he said, I'd like my PFAS blood test done. And that doctor said to him, why? And he said, well, I'm 18. I've been brought up on bore water. He was brought up with contaminated water. I'd like it done. And the doctor actually verbaled him out of getting it done. He said, well, mate, I don't believe that you need that done. And why bother to have it done when the test results are only going to say that you've got PFAS in your blood or you haven't got PFAS in your blood and there's nothing we can do about it anyway? And can you go any day of the week? This is Northern Territory Senator Malandiri McCarthy. The reason why I ask is in Catherine they only go one, there's only one day. Yes, What's I've, the I've case heard here? of that. I'm not sure because my son was verbaled out of his second PFAS test. Dr Peter Spafford is a GP in Catherine who gave an explanation why his clinic only offers PFAS blood tests on a Saturday morning. Two GPs for a town this size is makes it a very busy little general practice. Um, so we've set it aside to the Saturday. A, that means that we don't then burden the rest of the week with an additional workload. And B, it's not a temptation to double dip with a Medicare sort of thing and the PFAS billing and sort of, oh, well, while you're here, just have a PFAS blood test and away you go. And I'll also bill Medicare for your sore throat, but I'll bill things like that. So it's set aside, so it's separate in terms of its billing, it's separate in terms of its paperwork, it's separate in terms of its blood, uh, the, the blood collection, and it's separate in terms of um, all that processing and, and the information that's provided. He also said that he was given instructions not to advertise the availability of the blood tests in his clinic for PFAS. 
This is Queensland Senator Claire Moore. Because people will be using these numbers for whatever purposes to make argument. 380 since March, is that right? March, yes, that's um, right. And I know that there have been limited times to do it and all those things. To me, from outside, and I don't know your area, does it look like a lot? We've been told um, very definitely by Department of Health as well as by the Primary Health Network that we are not to promote it in any way, shape or form. Okay. Okay. You're not to promote it? No, not to promote it. Ourselves as Gorge Health are not to promote it. Okay. Okay? That the government will undertake all the advertising and promotion of this. Okay? So that is something that we have stuck to. We do not advertise it in any way, shape or form. Okay? What I am concerned about and what I have always been concerned about is the level of PFHXS, which in March this year, when I started doing the testing, I didn't even know this substance existed, let alone that it would be a considerable contaminant in this area. I still didn't even know where it came from. And in fact, the Department of Health didn't even tell me where it was coming from. I found that out from some guy in the, from the Queensland University to tell me where it was coming from. And he said, it's most likely from the firefighting foam. That is the substance they use in the firefighting foam. This important data, of course, needs to be connected with international studies that are doing exactly the same thing. Because in Australia, in relative sense, these numbers are quite small to be able to detect with power and a high level of robust methodology health impacts that may still be years away from being picked up. These relatively small numbers of tests need to be able to be added in to international studies to increase the odds that we have a satisfactory sample size to be able to make an assessment of any possible future PFAS contamination health impacts. The committee also recommended that the soil testing that is done around these affected aquifer areas be more publicly available. And there is sensitivity around the impact on property values. There is some concern that testing done on private land should only be added to that database in an opt-in arrangement. But the management area plans that are being developed by the Department of Defence are incredibly important for peace of mind, for people to understand exactly what areas are at risk, and over time, because this movement uh, of contaminated aquifer can occur at a particular rate by distance per year that can be measured and in some cases predicted. So in many cases what this committee found, as committees before us have found, is that property owners in PFAS contaminated areas have suffered demonstrable and quantifiable financial losses. And in this level, like the reports before it, the committee has found a case for compensation and this is not a sequel of the 1997 movie The Castle. What we've seen is that ordinary citizens have been driven to organise, to conduct research, to develop significant expertise to try and understand the long-term flow-on effects of contamination of which they are of no part. And they desperately want to be heard. And it should not take years of campaigning at this level, incredibly personally draining, before they can have a sense that their concerns are being adequately addressed, particularly in communities where that feeling is experienced as a group. These people were not speculators. These people were not seeking a quick bit of profit by buying in a smart location. Many of these people that the committee heard, heard from had purchased with the intention of staying forever, had purchased to enjoy life on acreage, had purchased to be able to capitally improve 
for their next generation, for their own family. This is Jennifer True, resident of Catherine, Northern Territory. I'm 61 years old, Donna's 66. We've worked our butts off all our married lives so that when we retired, we would have a worthwhile life and something tangible to leave our boys. That was our legacy for our boys. When my mum and dad passed away, I got their part of their legacy and that's what I've, we've both spent all our working lives doing, is working, so that we could leave something for our boys as a final gift. The final gift is parked up on Morris Road at the moment. Beautiful property, beautiful place to live and it's practically worthless because no one wants to buy out there. No one wants to buy where there is dangerous water. So for the last 35 years, everything that we have worked towards is just dust, is just ash. What are we doing? Working for another 10 years, does he have to be in his 70s before we can retire? And that's not just us, that's a lot of people here. You put your faith in a system, in a government, any government you choose, to do the right thing by the people who put them there in the first place. Both of us have worked, lots of people here have worked all their lives to get somewhere so that we can say, hey, look, we might go on a holiday next year. Pigs ask, we won't be going anywhere because we are both working. Him at 66 years of age, he's doing double shifts most days at work. I'm doing long hours at work for not a huge wage just so that we can keep ahead of our mortgages, because we've got two of them, one up here, one down in Western Australia. What have we done all this for? What, so we can be told, uh, no, no, it's no worries, there's no worries, there's no, no danger here, no, no health problems here. I can't sleep, I'm having trouble eating, my nerves are shot to shit, because I'm thinking, this is all, all our working lives, we've worked towards that point where we bought that property where we are now. Who gives a shit? No one. No one. Everyone is just concentrating on butt covering and how can we get out of this with minimal financial damage. The financial damage is enormous. The, the physical damage, the emotional damage is terrifying. I am so scared of what's going to happen to my property. And I think how dare people put all of us in that position where we don't know Hey, if you drop your value by 50%, you might sell it. Well, no, I'll die there if I have to. I'm not prepared to be fed platitudes anymore by anybody. I want somebody to say, okay, we ballsed up. This is what we are going to do for you people. Instead of saying, how can we possibly weasel our way out of it? That's my feelings. And some of these stories are quite graphic. Uh, for Britt Osborne, if I could name one, who made a $400,000 investment in a water park, only to discover weeks before opening that this had occurred on land that was known to local authorities and defence as being contaminated. Moving for me personally was a former friend from my own electorate who moved to the contaminated areas around Madawi and purchased just six weeks before the news broke, putting all of his wealth into land that he was unable to sell or borrow in order to purchase somewhere else. If you'll excuse the vernacular, Deputy Speaker, there's an expression out there. It says, shit happens to good people. But this is not something that they should have to bear alone. It is hard to imagine a more frustrating example than an environmental contaminant leaching from next door into your own property 
and being left to sort it out for yourself. Justice uh, delayed is justice denied. Here is Diane Priddle, resident of Oakey, Queensland. All our efforts to date have come to a big nothing. This must change with this committee now, and it can. Put yourselves in our shoes and you would want change. We, like Williamstown, Catherine and the other sites around Australia, demand this of our government and elected members. Act now on compensation and using the most recent science on the issue. I have spoken to media many times in the past years to bring awareness to our plight. We have travelled to Canberra, spoken with defence, the Prime Minister's office in attendance, opposition defence, crossbench members, ministers and senators from Williamstown. At all these meetings, we asked all parties to work together for action now. PFAS and compensation was required so people had a way out. We have no way out. That meeting was November 2016, and we still haven't addressed that elephant in the room, compensation. Now August 2018, can this committee sort this out? After listening to the live streams from Catherine Williamstown, I would like to say this, that the process is similar to Oki. The process is slow, the waste of money is clear, the transparency isn't there. Between outdated science, mistakes made at public meetings, information centres, walk-in sessions and the big one, not listening to the people on the ground that are living this flame and nightmare. Next is Madeline King, Labor member for Brand, Western Australia, talking with Fullerton Cove resident Sue Walker at the Williamtown hearing. Who do you understand is coordinating the response to your community on behalf of the federal government? Which departments? There's so many. Um, there's so many departments... There's so many panels. Um, I mean, the list just goes on and on. It gets too confusing. We don't know which panel's looking after this, which panel's looking after that, who's looking after this, who's looking after that. It's just, yeah, it's just a confusing mess. The committee's report says the Commonwealth Government's response to the issue is being coordinated by the PFAS Task Force, which was established in December 2016. This task force used to be under the Prime Minister and Cabinet, but moved in April 2018 to the Department of Environment. But at the Williamtown Inquiry in July 2018, some members of the committee only became aware of the new location of the PFAS task force during the inquiry. This is Sharon Clayton, a Labor Federal Member for Newcastle. I had some late advice that we actually have confirmation that the task force has been moved to environment. It's not in PMC anymore. So I just thought it's important to have that on the record. Many residents have said that the PFAS task force is largely missing in action. This is Lindsay Clout speaking on behalf of CAP, the Coalition Against PFAS. We were then informed that there was a PFAS task force put together. Now that gave us some hope because we thought, well, we've got a central body now, we've got somebody to talk to, we've got uh, a name, which was uh, uh, Senator McGrath. So we thought 
they would be the people that would be leading the solution for us. So that's the answer to your question, but this PFAS task force seems to be quite invisible. We have difficulty communicating with them. We don't know when they meet. We don't know what their direction is. So I have some concern about whether the PFAS task force is the answer. This is Northern Territory Senator Malandiri McCarthy. So your hope for that task force to have led you to some conclusion yes. has not been realised? Correct. Many witnesses at the PFAS inquiry called for a federal whole-of-government response to the PFAS contamination issues in Australia. This is Merlin Smith, a resident from Catherine, Northern Territory. It should be a national priority right now. Nothing we've done has been precautionary. 30 years ago it would have been precautionary. 17 years ago it would have been precautionary. If all we can do at this stage is prevent other communities from going through this same mind-boggling experience of finding out you're drinking contaminated water, that it's in your blood, that there's no practical treatment to remove it, and, oh, well, if you're drinking it, if you're still drinking it, oh, it's at low levels, so no harm done. You know, there's this prioritising, uh, like, triage, as if we've, we've identified the most important, um, the most um, toxic bores, and we've supplied them with water, and that's it. And that's not good enough. You know, there's the rest of the community, the rest of Australia out there that's looking for the government, federal government, to step in and do the right thing and not just wait for the Department of Defence to maybe tap the next community on the shoulder and then they tap the next EPA if, if it's not stepping on anyone's jurisdictional toes. So, you know, where's our right, all of us as Australians, to clean drinking water? So in the report, we've recommended that a coordinated general be appointed with the authority and the resources necessary to more effectively coordinate the whole of government effort in respect of PFAS contamination. And a coordinated general would ensure a clear and consistent approach and also a level of separation uh, between dealings with the Department of Defence and the affected community. And it would allow community consultations to occur uh, not just with federal, state, but also local government. There is no doubt that there will be a long period, I suspect, before we understand the full health impacts of PFAS. And the reasons for using PFAS couldn't even be, couldn't be more critical. I mean, this is the fastest possible way of extinguishing fires in air bases to protect the lives of our service personnel and other civilians who work on airfields. And it's not a throwaway line to say find a non-PFAS alternative. We know they're out there, but it can make the difference between life and death. Here is Dr Andrew Jeremajenko again at the Oki hearing. I'm an occupational physician. Before working for the MADA, I was actually the chief medical officer of Woodside, which is an oil and gas company. Before that, I was working for BP for four years as their medical advisor. And before that, I worked for International SOS. One of my first jobs with International SOS was evacuating eight people who had been in a fire from an oil and gas explosion. So I understand the need to put out fires because I have evacuated these people and some of them die. So firefighting foams are very important. And I've worked with the industry, and the industry, they like the firefighting foams, and Defence likes these firefighting foams. The problem is, as a doctor, I have to actually advise these companies about whether these firefighting foams are, are still acceptable. And the truth is that they are no longer acceptable. In the North Sea and in many other places in Europe, the oil and gas companies are using fluorine-free foams and they are doing a great job. If you talk to the firefighters in Victoria, Queensland, 
they will tell you these fluorine-free foams work. So you don't need to use these dangerous foams anymore. My advice to my oil and gas companies is to change over. Woodside, where I work for, they're using fluorine-free foams on their rigs. There's a lot of oil and gas there, big explosions, and they know that it's safe to use fluorine-free foams on the rigs. But you go onshore in West Australia, and they're still using the PFOA, PFOS. Why is that? It's a lot to do with legislation, policies. It's a lot to do with risk management and people's uh, approach to risk management. What I would like to advise this panel is it's, it's really time now to start risk managing. You're looking at massive bills if you don't start risk managing. But the management of this product has created challenges, known since the turn of the century, but coming to a point where we're confident enough to be able to find a solution has taken way too long. Adding in the half-life of PFAS, years and years after exposure, still detectable in blood and tissue, creates this horrible weight to know whether choices of simply where you elected to settle down, to rent, buy or run a business is going to have an impact on your children. We cannot answer the health questions today, Deputy Speaker, but what we can see is that while the strict legal liability of damage may be a very, very hard case to definitively prove in the absence of health evidence. There is an unequivocal case for the nuisance that has been brought on these properties and the property uh, values implications that have led to what we referred to as the equity trap. That is as clear as day. We have a free market economy where we can turn to not only property sales in areas but also value as general around the country that are responsible in those areas to define falls in property values. And the equity trap is quite simple, Deputy Speaker. It's a circumstance where the value in your own asset is so low, it's impossible to pay off the loan if you elect to sell. If you are lucky enough to be able to do that, the equity trap means that the bank may not fully recognise the value of your property as equity and part of the LVR to purchase somewhere else. And for these reasons, often people are trapped. Even more disturbing is that many ask their family to come and join and live in paradise and purchase a property nearby. An entire family's wealth is caught in these contaminated areas. Residents deserve an opportunity to pull together a factual basis of what has happened to them, for it to be considered on face value, in good faith and in good time. And the committee found that as we visited each of these areas, these properly functioning property markets uh, told a very different story to the experiences of property owners, and in many cases only uh, an open on-market sale will get you that answer. And we believe that a combination of professional valuation, market testing and bringing the factual basis of individual complaints in a non-litigated way is, a, is an option for moving forward, and we know that there are already over 40 of these cases before the Commonwealth. Deputy Speaker, no family should be trapped on contaminated land. They shouldn't be prevented from selling because of the effects of a pollutant for which they are not responsible. And simply because the polluter is unable to meet their part of the bargain to make that sale possible so that people can be airlifted from the red zone. All of the mental health services, all the social support aside, if responses had been more timely, as this report notes, there wouldn't be the need for those services. On behalf of Senator McCarthy, uh, Ms Swanson, uh, Senator Moore, those who went around the country, I'd like to thank and pay tribute 
to the members of those PFAS affected communities right across the country who made submissions to the inquiry. This is not an easy process. They gave evidence and they've given evidence before. The hearings in Catherine, Williamtown and Oakey gave the subcommittee a very strong feeling about the intensity of emotion that has built up over years as residents sought justice. These communities are hurt, uh, they're angered. Many people didn't come and front the committee when we did visit and we wish we could have heard from them. But the delays and the inadequacies in finding justice um, has done enormous damage uh, to those living there and their families. The option to leave a contaminated area without financial loss was a common thread from all three inquiries. Many people express the desire to move away and try to enjoy life again. They want agency over their lives again and the ability to make decisions that will benefit themselves and create a secure future for their family. Here is Jennifer Spencer again from Oakey, Queensland with Diane Priddle encouraging her in the background as she made a statement of how PFAS has affected her and her family. Um, I'd like to start by saying whatever information I give you today, I hope from this you will deliver a strong message to the Defence Department that they have truly messed up here. Our desired outcome from this and from the forced litigation that we are under is that we are duly compensated for our losses, our loss of property values, our loss of lifestyle, our loss of a safe and financially stable future and for the loss of our ability to provide. <laughs> An inheritance of value to our son. <laughs> we did not ask for this contamination in our lives. It has been forced upon us by a negligent and guilty polluter. The Defence Department should be and should have been asking us right from the very start. But what can we do for you? for you to feel the least aggrieved that you could possibly be. How can we fix this for you? But no, that was never going to happen. The Department of Defence has insisted on using us and our surrounds as guinea pigs. They have wasted our precious time and large amount of taxpayer dollars funding useless and protracted studies. Studies of our environment and epidemiology that have nothing to do with helping us out of this mess. Studies that use figures and evidence that do nothing more than leave us in harm's way and limit their liability towards us. We as a community of contaminated residents and seemingly non-contaminated residents have also been divided by this issue. We have become a for and against defence community. We have been told that this is all our fault. We have been told to shut up and go away. What are you whinging about? Move away, cut your losses and get out of this town. You're tainting the town, etc., etc., etc. The Def Defence Department has a lot to answer for. The politicians of the coalition have a lot to answer for. We've had enough. That is all I can say. We have had enough. We would just like to leave here and start again. We would like the last five years of our lives to be just a bad memory. I would like to live, and I would like to live the best possible life that I can for the rest of it with my family in a safe place. This is the former New South Wales Green Senator, Lee Rhiannon, talking to Lindsay Clout from the Coalition Against PFAS. Considering the enormity of this, could you just list what you think the priorities are? Like if you were the government, what's the priority list that you would work on? 
because it's so serious, but I think we do need to ask for that advice. Certainly, and I detailed that in the beginning. If the chemical is banned universally across this country, we change the whole atmosphere. Once we protect the people and the environment, but what I see clearly coming from that ban is a recognition that we have a dangerous toxic chemical. So that first step, I believe, brings the community and the government together. One of the huge frustrations that we have encountered for three years is that this has been an us and them argument. And it is just extraordinary that we are in that place. So we ban the chemical. We align ourselves with the Stockholm Convention. Once again, that is a recognition that we have a toxic substance here that needs to be dealt with. We need to clean up our contaminated sites. And of course, lastly, is that the people that are impacted by this contamination need to be given an option to, to be moved away from it. Now, that may be a complex construction, whatever those options are, but there needs to be something on the table for those people very quickly. Now, cleaning up PFAS contamination isn't simple. Uh, the technology isn't quite there to cost-effectively remediate certainly contaminated soil. Uh, pumping water out of aquifers uh, is unlikely to ever be a job that's completed, water scrubbed and then returned to the water supply. But I trust that this report honours the efforts, the efforts of um, the local residents to bring these issues to us um, and also the individual federal officers, in particular Steve uh, Greshkoviak and Chris Birra, who have been part of consultations with each of these affected communities and uh, worn an enormous amount of emotional frustration uh, from these communities and rightly so. Uh, Steve Greshkoviak. I'm the Deputy Secretary uh, for Estate and Infrastructure within the Department of Defence. Chris Birra. I'm the First Assistant Secretary for Infrastructure in the Department of Defence. Thanks very much. Gentlemen, you can uh, start with a statement if you'd like. Um, thank you. I, I didn't come with a prepared statement, but um, I will take the opportunity um, just to say that Chris and I have been here all day and um, we've listened to the very heartfelt uh, submissions that have been made by the members of this community. Um, yeah, we, we understand that there are significant levels of anxiety and stress in this community over this issue. Um, I can't claim to fully understand what that, how people feel about that, but clearly uh, that's evident from what we've heard today. Um, we, we have been um, involved in this issue now for some years. Um, this was something that defence sort of discovered for itself um, rather than you know a, a third party telling us what we had to do we've been on a learning journey um, we try and be as open as we can with the communities that we engage with um, in terms of publishing all of the information that is produced from the various uh, work that we do um, we have good relations and are deeply connected now to a lot of state uh, and federal um, organizations some of the points that have been made earlier clearly if, if we had our time again we would have done some things differently um, there is no doubt about that and we have learnt from the experiences um, particularly here and at Oki which were the first places that we became involved with and subsequent investigations as they've been launched have been launched in a different way and we we approached communities first but I can't undo what was done the decisions that were made 
uh, you know, four or five years ago were made with the best of intentions. Um, but we, we, you know, we continue to try and improve the way we engage with communities and the way we do this work. Uh, the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants is a global treaty uh, which also uh, captures PFAS. And the Convention requires parties to take measures to eliminate or reduce uh, the release of these uh, pollutants into the environment. And the Convention was adopted in 2001, entered force 2004. And Australia, while party to the Stockholm Convention, uh, which we ratified in 2004, uh, was subject to a declaration by which any amendment to chemicals included would need to be individually ratified. And this is where PFAS falls. Australia has yet to ratify the listing of PFAS or any other chemicals that have been added to the Convention. But in October, two years ago now, the Department of Energy of Environment and Energy released a regulation impact uh, statement. And many will recall that that pointed out that of the four options presented, ratifying the listing of PFOS under the Convention and phasing out all non-essential uses would achieve the greatest, cost, um, greatest reduction at lowest cost. And this consultation closed um, earlier this year. PFO isn't yet listed under the Stockholm Convention, but in October 2017, it was recommended that the Council parties to the Convention consider the listing of those chemicals. Doing this, of course, requires all states to agree. Two states so far have banned the use of PFAS, uh, but the rest are to arrive at a position. That is utterly essential before we can go further. I thank everyone for their participation and I urge the government to take note of the report. The Australian government is due to respond to the committee's report by the 3rd of March, 2019. With an election looming in May, it will be interesting to see how the Morrison government respond to the committee's recommendations. I'd like to say thank you to all the witnesses and residents who gave me permission to share their voices in this podcast. It's also important to note the caution that Andrew Lamming gave at each inquiry regarding what you have heard today. We remind you also that as a subcommittee, like all of them, they're protected by parliamentary privilege and that makes it unlawful for anyone to threaten or disadvantage a witness on account of the evidence that they provide to us. And such action can be treated by either House of Parliament as a contempt. It's also contempt, obviously, to give false or misleading evidence to a committee. Next episode of Talking PFAS, I'll be bringing you a discussion I had with Assistant Professor of the University of California, Berkeley. His research has found an association between PFAS chemicals and obesity. So we found that PFASs in, in blood uh, are associated with weight gain over time and over a long period of time too. However, we see that exercise and diet, so this is a lifestyle intervention of exercise and diet, was able to attenuate this weight gain that is associated with, uh, with this PFAS exposure. If this podcast episode has left you needing to talk to someone, please call Lifeline 13114144 or Beyond Blue 1300 2246. Thank you once again for listening to Talking PFAS and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks very much. See you next time. All the information and audio in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for permissions. Thank you.